Superbrain is a labour of love. Alas, no podcast can survive on love alone. We don't have a sponsor, so we need your support for Superbrain to stay alive and kicking. You can make a one-off donation by following the Support This Show link in the show or episode description. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. My name is Sabina Brennan, and you are listening to Superbrain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. My guest this week is Barnaby Walter, a.k.a. BP Walter. When I read a book called The Dinner Guest in April this year, I was absolutely just blown away by the book. I am an avid psychological thriller fan. I absolutely eat them up. I just came across this book. I think it had only just been published and I had a little listen on Audible and I went, oh, yeah, love this. Have to buy it. And I don't know what the phrase for audiobook, unputdownable, <laughs> but it was the equivalent of that. And I gave it straight to my husband to listen to as well. And we both absolutely loved it. But I just took one of those moments. I said, I really want to talk to this author because there's just such a freshness to the writing and to the setting and to the characters that I just loved it. And I just reached out on Twitter to Barnaby and you know guys like all that people can do is say no and you very kindly replied (laughs) to this crazy woman but I actually do think you also very kindly listened to a couple of episodes I presume to check that I wasn't utterly crazy and this wasn't a a mad podcast so thank you very much my guest today is Barnaby Walter he writes under BP Walter and I'm going to read a little bit because I was looking for bio And I found this on your publisher's website and it says B.B. Walter was born and raised in Essex. After spending his childhood and teenage years reading compulsively, he worked in bookshops, then went to the University of Southampton to study film and English, followed by an M.A. in film and cultural management. He is an alumni of the Faber Academy and currently works in social media coordination for Waterstones in London. Now you need to get onto your publisher and they need to update your bio because you no longer work in social media you are a full-time writer and that very book the dinner guest is a sunday times bestseller congratulations you've got to tell us how you kind of got there thank you so much um yes no it's all a bit of a strange kind of um slightly i don't know overwhelming or bewildering experience really but um, yeah the bio will change in the next book (laughs) but um yeah in terms of how i got there well there's like a very long publication journey and there's um, probably a much more listener-friendly abridged one but um, essentially when I finished university I did film in English at university and it was purely theoretical it wasn't how to write a book or how to make a film it was purely the study of film in English and then I did a film and cultural management master's also at the University of Southampton and that was very much focused on the business side of the film industry and how we sell stories and how they're packaged up to audiences and that kind of thing and I kind of knew that as I was contemplating a career in film distribution I kind of knew I needed to do something 
more personal and creative to me. And I thought about filmmaking and that slightly scared me because I think filmmaking involves a lot of other people's time and money, whereas writing a novel is literally just you in the room writing a book and with a laptop. And um, so I decided to do that. And um, it took me a few years to write a book that got me an agent. And I got a brilliant agent, Joanna at Harmon Swainson. And that book was my debut, A Version of the Truth, which was then published a few months later. And well, no, sorry, no, we got the book deal a few months later and then published the year after that. So that took us up to 2019. So that's 2019, folks, right? Okay. And the dinner guest is 2021. But I do want to just take you back to 2019, Barnaby, because my listeners know I stalk my guests just trying to find little snippets because I'm interested in the person who's written these books and why they write certain things and why certain themes draw them in and I came across an interview that you had done in 2019 just after your first book was published and it was a podcast called The Worried Writer Mm. and what's really jumped it was so interesting just to read it and know where you are now just a short two years uh, later and you were talking about writing and how the dream is, oh, if I can get a publisher, you know, and then you get to that and you actually say, gosh, you get a publisher and then the book is published and then there's a whole load of other new worries and insecurities that come in. And you say about being published, it introduces a new level of consciousness and anxiety into the process. It's very strange. When you're writing, you think of it as a dream. You think something really stupid. You think once this happens, all my problems will be solved and I'll be forever happy, right? And then in another part of it, you say, it's sort of which is related to this, because you're talking about having worked in bookshops since you were about 15, knowing the astonishing highs which are possible. It's very exciting to see a book catch fire like that when you're working in a bookshop. And I think that in part inspired me. Not that I thought I could achieve that, but seeing people to be so passionate about story was amazing. And here you are, you actually have achieved (laughs) that. It's almost I can hear in you saying, yeah, this really is my dream, but I have to sort of say, I'm not so big headed to think that that kind of might happen, but wouldn't it be lovely? And here it is. Just for me, that was just lovely to see you articulate shyly that dream and then to achieve it. it must feel amazing for you. Yeah, it's very strange. And also, um, as you're saying, like with the experience of book selling, because I used to work in um, bookshops, I started from when I was a teenager up until when I was about 22 or 23. I think doing that, you become quite used to the idea of a lot of authors bringing out a lot of books and none of them really doing that much in terms of high sales. And um, not that that's the be all and end all, of course. There are many authors, I think it's important to say, that um, never necessarily get to the charts or the bestseller list but still make a decent income still very much have great careers and I think sometimes there can be perhaps too much emphasis sometimes placed upon all the stuff that kind of goes with it but I was very aware that when I got my first book published it may take me like 10 12 20 books before I even touched anywhere near the level of success that I could hope for and I've been very lucky that it's happened on book three but um, I think there is a kind of worry that when it doesn't happen with the debut and I think as an industry there's perhaps a bit of an odd focus on debuts and it's always like oh debut author here we go you know it's their first time it's an amazing like new book that we're going to promote and that kind of stuff and there are several other author podcasts that I listen to that make me feel a lot better about this um this kind of strange world but a lot of the things that's spoken about is how odd it is in an industry to put so much pressure to some extent on the new blood on a new person coming in when so many other careers 
the first person to like their first day in the first job, it wouldn't be, well, you're now the most important person in the company, or you're now the most important person in your career. It's that you work up, you go up a ladder, you, yes. you know, try and sustain a level of success, but there may be highs and lows, but generally you have a great progression. Whereas weirdly in publishing, quite often it seems like that first moment is the biggest point of the career. And it's almost the wrong way around to some extent. So yeah, I've been quite lucky that it's like grown per book. Well, I agree with you in what you say, you know, that kind of pressure and then also that dream, you know, because there is this, oh, first book, breakout, number one bestseller or whatever. And I agree with you. The publishing industry wouldn't exist without the people who write and sell regularly and not necessarily huge amounts. I want to go back to the fact that you said you've been very lucky. I'm always really dubious about luck. I think luck only comes into play when you put in an awful lot of hard work and you're there or you're ready to capitalize on that break or that opportunity. So it's not just all luck. I think there's more to it than that. And I think in your case, you did the Faber Academy writing course. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I did that. I was working on my debut when I did that. And I had my debut as my work in progress while I was on the course, which was really good and really helpful, actually, because I'd never learned creative writing as a particular pursuit and even though I'm not necessarily one of the people that thinks that everyone should go on creative writing courses or you don't know how to do it or at the same time there are others that don't think creative writing can be taught and there's like two extremes in this argument whereas I think if it's right for you go for it and for me it felt like a natural thing to do and it was just wonderful I had a brilliant tutor called Rowan Coleman who's an amazing author and she was so brilliant at guiding me and my um, fellow classmates and through various different parts of the industry both the writing and the technical parts of that and also in terms of agents and that's mm-hmm. that side of thing and um, looking for publications so yeah it was a really good step. I think it is rather interesting what you say because actually I noticed a tweet the other day from Sheila Flanagan who was also a guest on season two but she said she was listening to a podcast and I'll share the tweet in the blog for this episode but she said she was listening to a podcast on writing the other day and they were talking about story arcs and something else and she says I haven't a clue what they're talking about I just write the story and I thought that was lovely and I think that's it there's no one way to skin a cat you know different strokes for different folks and to spew out lots of those little phrases But John Boyne, I remember when I was talking to him, he said initially, and he does teach writing also, and he said initially he always had a plan and a plot and all the rest. He says now he doesn't need it. And he thinks what that is, is he trusts himself more. He knows it's there and it's probably just ingrained in his brain anyway. You say as a child, you were a compulsive reader. Now, as a psychologist, I think compulsive, like did you just have to read or do you just mean it in the more everyday sense that that was just? Yeah, the more everyday sense. It, I, it's actually odd. I was quite a slow reader as a child and I would only get through like when I went on to, you know, older and wider books, only a handful of books a year. And I did enjoy it, but I was very slow. and I was quite aware of how slow I was. But because I was always reading, there was this idea that I was this massive bookworm and must get through hundreds of books a year. Whereas I actually was very slow with it. And um, it was only until I got later in life that I got quicker. And it was actually audiobooks that really upped my um, reading um, abilities or speeds and things like that. And now I go between books and audio all the time. And if I'm really loving a book, I'll then buy the audio. So then I can go out for a run and carry on listening. 
yeah, yeah. And I'm the reverse because if I'm interviewing a guest, I like to have either a hard copy or a PDF of the book so that I can make notes and talk. And you're reading very differently for when you're reading for a guest because you're thinking about things that you might be able to talk about. I know some people, there's a certain snobbery about audiobooks, but you know what? They are the most amazing thing. They can transport me. They become an escape for me. I can double job with them. But also my husband you talk about being a slow reader. My husband was dyslexic and he reads and reads newspapers. But whatever happens when he reads in his brain, he starts to fall asleep. That's just what happens. And so he'd never really read a book. He'd read a couple of soccer biographies because he'd be mad football fan, but might be one in a year. And I'd always been saying to him about audiobooks. And with lockdown, I just said, no, go on. You have to try. And actually yours was one of the early books. And he started in January this year. And I'd say he's at 30 books, which I just think is incredible and just loves them. And he actually even remembers more of them even than I do. So like I'm reading books and then Dave reads them sort of after me and I'm going, oh, where are you? What bit are you at? It's great. It's a new relationship we had because we never had that. I enjoyed books on my own. But where I'll say, oh, I'm at the bit where she pulls out the letter or I'm at the bit, he'll go, he'll actually do the accents and he'll repeat the lines word for word. So he has the whole book in his head. And, and I just think that's fabulous. I think audiobooks has opened up a world to a lot of people who weren't there and who've kind of never read books. And if there's any listeners there, I know my husband was under the misconception that audiobooks were somebody reading a book. You know, he said this, but it's not. It is the book played out. And I have to say that about the dinner guest. The audiobook is fabulous. So pleased you enjoyed it. Oh, fabulous. The narrators were brilliant because a narrator can kill an audiobook. If I listen and I don't like the sound, even if I love the author, I will not take the audiobook because you've got to listen to that person in your head for 10, 12 hours. So you really have to love your new book, which comes out on the 11th. I love the date actually on your, your profile, 11, 11, 21. It just looks like some sort of prophecy. But I very thankfully got an advanced copy last week and I read it and I would have read it in one sitting, except that I made a promise on this show that I was going to work on my sleep and not stay up late. But it would have been one of the reasons I stayed up late. And then actually what I decided, I had about 50 pages left, I think. And I read it maybe another little bit more, but I kept the last little bit till yesterday because I wanted it really fresh in my head talking to you. And again, like your first book, so much happens in the last few pages. There's just so much. Would you say this is a good description, you know, that your book, certainly these two, I haven't read your first two and I'm really looking forward to reading them, that you really build up and you you let us inside your characters' heads. And there's also some event. I mean, the dinner guest starts off with four people at dinner and one of them doesn't come out of dinner alive. And then similarly, at the start of The Woman on the Pier, which is your new book, the pivotal event we are aware of at the beginning of the book. And so then you take people on this journey. But then it's at the end, you know, there's all these little hints and little, I guess what I like is there's possibilities for multiple endings. And then you tie them all together very nicely. And surprisingly, so in the first book, surprisingly, in a lovely, you know, almost final flick at the end of that book, so it's really worth turning every page for. In your new book, and this is why I like to hold it at the end, I think I wanted a different ending. I understand why you gave that ending. And I suppose that's it. You're so invested uh, in the characters. How does that make you feel if someone says something like that to you? 
Oh, I don't mind. I find um, with books, I think like beauty is in the eye of the beholder very much and a different person will have a different experience with a different book and others will want a much more rounded off ending and others will like ambiguity or others will like things to end very nicely and very sweetly and others will want to sting at the end of the tale and want it to be a bit nastier. And it's interesting with The Dinner Guest, it used to be a lot more... I don't know. I don't want to say nice necessarily, but a slightly more pleasant ending. And then between me and my editor, my brilliant editor, Bethan, we um, came up with one that just had that slight sting at the end of it, an epilogue that kind of just inserted another note of doubt and like problems to come, which um, wasn't originally there and was written like almost over a year after the rest of the book was. And it's amazing how that can slightly reposition one's perception of how a book is ending. That didn't happen with The Woman on the Pier, it, it remained the same, but I find it difficult to kind of pinpoint where it came from or why I did it, because for me, a book just arrives as a whole, and that is the book. Does it really? Yeah, it's that's the whole book. Wow. And I never really change anything as I'm doing it. The easiest way I can describe it is, is like a painting, it's like a whole thing okay. that just arrives all at once. And some things may take a while to develop and some characters may become shaped as the writing goes on. But the ending is very much for me part of the thing as a whole and it's hard to unpick it. And it's a journey to get there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting, you know, and I've talked to a good few creatives and I've said this before. My son, my youngest son is a musician and he sees music. He sees the shape of music. So if he looks at a score, he sees the music. He sees patterns and shapes and whatever. And like that, you see some artists talk like that. And that's interesting that that you see sort of the book as a whole. And that makes sense to me. So then it must be this bursting to get it. (sighs) Okay, here's the story. That's what I would imagine. Um, Yes, sometimes. It depends on the book. Sometimes in terms of like the planning, because I plan all my books meticulously before they're written and... um, I've got more strict with the planning as I've gone on, actually. It's interesting. You mentioned um, John Boyne spoke about how he's um, got slightly looser with the planning side of things, even though, of course, he's written way more books than I have. So maybe I'll like start up and then go down again. No, I need a very meticulous plan. And when the idea arrives, I always write it out as a two or three page synopsis and right. a very basic description of the entire plot and how it would all go. And then I do a character list with every single character. Well, every kind of main character that has a part in the book. And I always go online and find pictures of actors or famous people and cast them all to make sure that I... And that is actually only there to make sure I don't get confused if characters' names change. Right. Because quite often that happens. Sometimes very late in the day, characters' names change. And if they do change, it can be a bit confusing if I've previously thought of them as someone else. Whereas if I can go, oh, that's Kate Winslet, that's Nicole Kidman, that's, you know, whoever else. I hope these people don't mind me using their names. But if I've just got a face in my head, that means I can then rearrange those characters as to where they fit in the novel and not lose track. That just makes so much sense to me. And what I have to say, folks, is I actually found out that this is public knowledge, but I actually kind of gave a little whoop that the TV film rights for the dinner guest have been purchased. Have. How exciting is that? Oh my yes. God. <laughs> yeah, it is very exciting. I don't think I'm allowed to yet say by who, but um, I'm allowed to say that they have been bought. Yes, because I found it on Twitter and I was so excited because it's so funny. Like, I mean, your book is a Sunday Times bestseller, but I sort of felt like I discovered you. It wasn't a book that anyone 
told me to read because it kind of had only come out. And I just thought, and I said, oh, I like the sound of that. And then I went, oh, you have to read this book. It's brilliant. And it's by this person. And so you have this sense that you kind of discovered someone new, but um, didn't, of course. But I was so pleased. I feel invested. We should kind of give a little synopsis about The Dinner Guest. And then you can tell us who you imagine playing Charlie <laughs> and Matthew. Um, well, firstly, I'm going to be very disappointed here. And I shouldn't really name names in terms oh, of yes, um, casting. Oh, yes, of course you can't. Because it's... Afraid, <laughs> Because I do have an ideal list. <laughs> Typical me. I just push out the question there. You can tell me afterwards <laughs> off record. <laughs> of um, course, now it's a real thing. Yeah, exactly. Oh, my mm, God. I, um, I mean, oh, I'm I, happy I, with that answer. That's kind of cool. <laughs> I, mean, I do have my ideal in my head, but the ideal could differ from what ended up. And I wouldn't want it to be as in like, oh, it's, you know. Yeah, yeah. Of course, you can't say who you had in your head now when you wrote the book either. No, sadly not. I don't think there's any rule against it necessarily, but I've just avoided saying... Um, I know, I understand. You've made your own little exactly. ethical... Yeah, yeah, mm. no, I get that. I totally understand that. Yeah, and I should also say the two actors I mentioned earlier are not on the list that I, you know, because simply, even though they're amazing actors, they wouldn't fit necessarily in the, um, yeah. the roles of the dinner guests. So I just plucked those names out of thin air before anyone reads too much into them. <laughs> yeah. Anyone listening, if you've read the book or if you do read the book, please do let me know who you imagine playing Charlie and Matthew and Rachel and Tito, is Titus. it? Titus. Titus. Mm. What a pretentious name. It's oh. perfect for the book. But I have to say one of the reasons that I really was taken with the book is... The main characters are Charlie and Matthew and they're a married couple and Rachel obviously plays a key role with this, as does the son, Titus, the couple's adopted son. But one of the real reasons why it kind of resonated with me was, first of all, actually, I think as I was reading it, I didn't realise I was reading about a gay couple marriage you know maybe a couple of pages in or something like that and then I did and that's what I loved about it was that this was just a very normal you know their characters in a book but what I mean is there was no trumpeting there was no announcing this is a gay couple this was just ordinary everyday stuff and I loved that and I really did because as a mother of a gay son who's married obviously to a man in a heteronormative world what my son has always said to me you know it's very difficult you don't see role models you don't read about those things and so for me that was fabulous to read that book because I think so often I mean I've read lots of books where there are gay characters in it and in fact John Boyne has written an amazing one which is also going to be turned into a tv series which will be amazing but Often those books are about being gay or about the challenge of being gay and about how the terrible things that happen in a world where being homosexual was criminalized and all those sort of things. This was just, in a way, incidental because the book is about betrayal and secrets and that was incidental. And I loved it. And I just think you managed that really well. How did you feel about writing that way? Or again, in this world of political correctness and where people are even tackling writers about appropriating stories and characters, how did you feel about writing? Or was that just there from the beginning, the couple? Um, I think, goodness me, there's lots of things we could go into about this, actually. And um, I fear sometimes potentially my views on it are perhaps controversial but I didn't think about it that much actually when I wrote it the thing that most kind of inspired me about the book really was that I at the time when I wrote it I lived in Belgravia in central London close to where the book is set it's mostly set in Chelsea and I was walking along the road in Chelsea and there was Carlisle Square the house where they lived 
and a house and uh, many houses and um, I just imagined all oh, wouldn't it be fun to set because um, you don't know what's happened behind those closed doors yeah. and those really perfect garden squares in London and I thought all kinds of things could be happening and so I thought it'd be really interesting to have a married couple on that square with their son Titus and their world seemed to be perfect and it actually isn't so that was what really inspired me to write it the idea of them being a gay couple I have actually no real idea where that came from really as I said before it just arrives kind of all at once and they just were I just had Titus and his parents Charlie and Matthew even though they weren't called that I keep on occasion referring to them as they're like previous names Um, but in terms of the stories and representation of gay people and things like that I do know exactly what you mean in the sense that it often seems problematized in some way in fiction and whilst of course there is a space for writers to tackle themes like homophobia or issues to do with discrimination and things like that and those stories should be told because that's how we remember the problems of the past or even problems that remain the present this was never for me one of those stories I wanted it to be as incidental as them being left-handed really not necessarily ignored but also not given undue focus and I do get slightly frustrated that I fear and this is you know, potentially controversial. I fear we're moving towards a time where it's now given even more undue focused and quite often more celebrated than necessarily like discriminated against. And whilst that's a much better alternative, I'm always hesitant when there's a risk of otherizing and it's made to seem that gay people are so different to heterosexual people. Therefore, a heterosexual writer therefore couldn't possibly think the same way as a gay couple because they're so different, which of course is absolutely nonsense. Bullshit. Exactly. And I'm gay myself, but I had the conversation actually about this with someone, how um, this concept of lived experience and how whether that's important or not and that kind of thing. And I actually saw the fact that I was gay and the characters writing about were gay absolutely kind of irrelevant to be honest because I have no lived experience that those characters have yeah I'm not a millionaire <laughs> I'm not you might um... be <laughs> <laughs> yeah I wasn't married I didn't have an adopted son I didn't live in a gorgeous townhouse yeah. in Chelsea I didn't you know drive flash cars I didn't have a job in advertising and all these things I didn't have a castle in Scotland you know all these things these characters have their actual proper lived experience I did not have whatsoever so I thought the idea of like sexual orientation being the link for lived experience was pretty tenuous really when it comes to that and I am really resistant to the idea that one should therefore be the same as one's characters to write them because I mean my previous characters that I've written are largely heterosexual characters yeah and that also suggests therefore I wouldn't be able to write them not being heterosexual yeah and I think it's a pretty limiting viewpoint really that a writer can really only write what they themselves have lived and of course I'm sensitive to the idea that there are topics that of course it would be very beneficial for a writer to have some experience of because I'm sure there'd be an insight into nuance and other areas that another writer may not pick up on or may not realize if they hadn't gone through certain things and particularly very specific or historical circumstances of course I understand there's definitely a place for that but I do worry the discussion is getting way too limiting and otherwise all we end up with is just memoir and diaries just nothing yeah I had this conversation and another guest on the show Amanda Smith when she's an Irish Trinidadian author and her first book was an Oprah Winfrey summer read and so it became bestseller and all the rest and that's a good few years ago now and when we were talking we were talking about her new book called fortune that came out this year all her books are set in trinidad and she said during the interview that she could not write her first book now 
because she's a white Trinidadian and she would have been accused of appropriation because she was writing in the first person about a black person's experience. She kind of accepts it, you know, and she said writing her next book, her way around it was writing in the third person rather than the first person because there's characters of various ethnicities in her new book. I do struggle with it. I just think we're all humans first. And then we happen to be gay or black or white. It is the cultural experience and the societal experiences that make us different. And they're hugely important, hugely important because they shape us. We are a makeup of our genetics, of our evolutionary history, of our family upbringing and of the society and culture that we live in. And all of those shape how our brain works, which means it shapes our emotional responses, our experiences, how we perceive the world, the reality that our brain creates. So that is, of course, all different. But fundamentally, we are humans. And I do not understand how we can have a rich literary and film content. Landscape, yeah of things yeah 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 if people are not allowed to use their imagination that is what writing and filmmaking is about it is about storytelling and if you go back in our history we are storytellers it is language and the capacity to imagine various futures that have actually allowed us to become whatever you want to call us, masters of the earth, we're going to destroy it, which shows how silly we are, but has allowed us to get to this position, top of the animal kingdom, is our ability to tell stories, to imagine futures, or to actually reiterate past, because we learn from past experiences, and so that oral tradition of telling stories about the past, they were all shaped, those people didn't live that past, the stories followed, and then the ability to imagine various futures allows us to make decisions, and so to me that's what literature and art and even not very good literature that's what books and films and music as well are about they're storytelling and they allow us explore and identify with our own experiences you know there's certain stories will resonate because and as I've said even with your book one of the reasons I suppose it's an excellent book and the being gay is incidental but that's why it resonated with me it's just incidental fabulous love that (laughs) but the book itself is an amazing story and I just think some people are better at imagining and better at telling stories than others and which do you rather do you rather an excellent book that tells a great story or a mediocre this is my true story which has the most impact I love the power that books can have if we want to affect change books and film can help us to do that yeah I kind of have two kind of pillars I keep with me when I'm writing and I don't really write very controversial books at all really but um, the thing I kind of keep in mind is that firstly, and this more applies to if I was going to go into um, I don't know, more direct or particular areas, but my view is just try and do it well, just research well, just try and write well, try and be sensitive to topics and they'll get it wrong at times and readers are there to criticise if they do. And You only owe the reader the book and the reader can decide whether or not that's been done well or not. So I tend to think just be as sensitive and mindful as possible and um, but not let that limit the creativity. And the other area I always think of is that a particular character, for me at least, and I'm only speaking for me and my experience of writing, a particular character for me is not meant to represent all of the people that may be like that character. So in my second book, Hold Your Breath, I wrote for the perspective of a 10-year-old girl. 
who was experiencing quite sinister things in a forest involving exorcisms, quite different from the dinner guest. But um, I never intended that book to be an example of this is how all 10-year-old girls think. This is how all 10-year-old girls live their lives. This is how all 10-year-old girls are. Of course not, because the character called Kitty, and that was just purely about Kitty's experience and what happened to her when she was 10. And so I think sometimes we risk kind of taking one character and blowing it up into, therefore, this is speaking for all 10 year old girls or all women or all gay couples or insert whichever um, attribute or experience. Then we're just writing stereotypes, you know. Exactly, yeah. Now, obviously, you have a background in social media. And I recently had a guest on the show, Dr. Mary McGill. Basically, she explores the visibility trap that is social media. It's increased our visibility, but with visibility, becomes exposure and there's a price to pay with exposure and the vulnerability and it's a really fascinating interesting read and in the dinner guest Charlie and Matthew are the perfect couple on Instagram and this is a great way for you to show you know this exterior life they have and we never used to know as you said what goes on behind that door we never used to know what goes on behind doors but we also didn't even really know what was going on outside in a lot of people's lives social media has changed that and people are pushing forward an image and it's usually sort of the perfect image in the book and that's critical in that the character Rachel tracks the character of Matthew down through this Instagram so there's the kind of visibility and the exposure I suppose if you want to look at that but then towards the end of the book we also have and I don't think I'm giving anything away about this but there's a character in it called Pippa and she is I suppose we would have called her like a socialite you know just a a rich kid and she's now writing for you use a quote in it um graffiti with punctuation <laughs> which is, actually isn't my no, isn't my no. words actually that <laughs> i attribute that is um, a um, film called contagion i think it's written by scott burns but i might have to well you that. do in uh, the book in the book you do yeah. attribute it to whoever it's a brilliant line isn't it oh, yeah. it's absolutely brilliant and essentially mm. this person and i really thought that was reflective around what's happening in terms of influencers this young woman she's 19 is writing on social media and the sole purpose of her writing seems to be to cause outrage and offence. I'm no longer going to engage with poor people about privilege. That kind of brings me to kind of another thing. I was looking and I was reading some of the reviews on Goodreads, all just amazing reviews, but so many of them harped on the theme of privilege and these people living privileged lives and the character Rachel hasn't lived this privileged life. And and yes, there are some very um, astute observations in it without being banged over the head. The story is key, but it does highlight some of those things. But I was quite taken aback by how many people disliked your characters. They loved the book and they disliked the characters. I was trying to think back. I don't think I had a sense of disliking the characters. I think I quite liked Charlie. I just saw them as human and it was nice to see people with human flaws and it written that way. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. There's something in the, uh, well, of course, um, I mean, I have a different perspective, of course, not being the reader, being the writer. But I do, I don't know, I would pause when it comes to giving any character really actually in many books a kind of a blanket kind of like unlikable kind of Mm. label because I mean I suppose it's all down to the way they're kind of portrayed and the way they're perceived but I much prefer the idea of people existing like on a continuum and no one is in wholly bad and no one's wholly good there's just kind of shades of grey in between and um, I try my hardest to kind of articulate those shades of grey within the story but the dinner guest does share a bit of a DNA with my 
first book, A Version of the Truth, um, where it involves kind of very high class, high moneyed circles in those areas of London. And I do try my best to make sure that not everyone is just also a villain, because as a reader, I would get tired of the idea of like, oh, posh people are bad. They're all privileged. They're all awful. They're therefore not as human as the rest of us. And it's they, othering. You know, it's just othering exactly. in another yeah, form. And I, I think it's hysterical. Mm. But anything where you put the, oh, the privileged or even the poor, you're othering. I've been avoiding actually making any sort of controversial comments on social media in recent years. I used to do them, but I just feel it's not safe anymore. But I did feel that, that with the book, there was a sense of, for some readers, it was, oh yeah, the privilege kind of getting a comeuppance in a way, which I didn't kind of really see it that way. That definitely wasn't, yeah. No, the, but the it was intended it, kind of. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was kind of there for some people mm. in the Goodreads thread, which is kind of interesting. And it's nice to get those perspectives, but I think that's the problem. I think social media has an awful lot to blame. And, and as you said, it's shades of grey. No people are all bad. And I think that's what's a terrible thing that's happened is that, people are being cancelled because they have a singular opinion about something and then all the goodness they've ever done in the world is null and void that's not a human thing and and actually I'm stealing from one of my guests I think it's Mary McGill who wrote Visibility Trap and she said in dehumanizing others you dehumanize yourself because you're not acting as a human it's one of the reasons I had the character Rupert in the dinner guest who is a sideline character and he is just an all-round genuinely nice person, you know, with his own flaws. And, um, you know, he's still a human being, but... Quite hunky, if I remember. Yeah. <laughs> he, um, <laughs> he's the character from my first novel, A Version of the Truth. Ah, because I saw that recently that you might see. So I was wondering, yes. actually, whether... Yeah. And he is very much a central character of the book I have just finished writing, which will be book six, probably. Wow. And um, it goes back to his childhood. But I wanted him to be there to basically, hopefully, make it clear that this isn't just one big kind of, you know, these people are terrible, aren't their lives awful, isn't this, you know, have this kind of, I don't know, strange sort of kind of criticism of inverted commas, the rich or the privileged or the money classes of London or the aristocracy or these groups that sometimes we find ourselves um, kind of using. And I understand why we do sometimes, because we live in a time poor society and it's quicker to kind of group and generalise sometimes. Mm. But I think within fiction, that's when you're given a playground to break down these groups and you can have fun kind of relooking, like we were talking earlier about the nuances and the shades of grey. When looking at those areas, that's where you get the really interesting questions. And I find the absolutist thinking and the kind of boxing and categorising that shuts down those interesting areas where I was more interested yeah. in opening those up. Yeah, and you did and you did it beautifully. And there's just so many subtleties and it really is fabulous. And for me, actually, the bigger themes were around and I think they kind of carry through to your next book are really around um, secrets and betrayal. And I mean, I don't think I'm taking too much away from talking about your next book. I really want to talk about it. It's a brilliant yeah, go for book, it. <laughs> but it, it's so hard. You know, I'm trying to figure out to talk about it without giving it away. Mm. But secrets are at the core of that. Social media also plays a certain role. Again, it's an amazing kind of, um, I suppose in a way now, your books are of a new time because some of the things that happen in your books couldn't happen without social media yes well yeah. I suppose there may have been other forms I suppose in your new book a diary could be a ploy in a way but I'm not sure it would kind of work in quite the same way but it's a fabulous book 
surprising journey. It's set around terrorists. Incidents. Yeah, terrorist attacks. Yeah. Terrorist attacks. Again, how did that come to you? Was that just some sort of feeling you had, you know, when those were happening? Yeah, it was. And I should also actually note that I wrote the next book, The Woman on the Pier, before The Dinner Guest, actually. Did you um, really? I did. Yeah, I wrote it three years ago, actually. It's My just goodness. taken a while to surface. Um, I wrote it in 2017. And when there was a large run of terrorist attacks. Yeah. And it very much became part of our life. Because I was kind of doing that in my head. Mm. I kind of was going, okay, why did he want to write about that? I mean, obviously you've been editing it now. That's what happens with books. But, oh, right. So that makes much more sense. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it was, I was a commuter going into London every day (gasps) during the time when um, the UK threat level was going between severe and critical. And it was a very worrying time and a very stressful time. I shouldn't actually talk about it as if it's in the past, because, of course, you know, the threat still remains. But the concept, actually, of the woman on the pier, I should say, is that a mother and father lose their daughter in a terrorist atrocity. And Jessica. Yeah. And they're they're confused as to why she was there. Why was she on the platform when that attack happened, when she shouldn't have been there? She should have been been like a teen. I did that myself. You know, I remember getting caught, you know, saying you were going one place, but actually actually you were going another another place. And again, the secrets, that's kind of part of where the secrets come Mm, in, because the devastation for the mother, Caroline, that my daughter actually lied to me. And that's as a mother, you feel that and you go, you can't ask them why. And this is the quest of the book, really. This is the mother's quest. Yes, to find exactly. Out why she yeah. was in that train station and lost her life. Yeah. The whole concept of the book came to me when I was waiting at Stratford Station, which is where the imagined terrorist atrocity takes place in the book. And I was waiting for someone who was running very late or um, hadn't turned up at the right time. And um, there were lots of police. It was around the time of the height of the terrorist concerns. And there was lots of Met police with big submachine guns or big guns walking around the um, station area. And they had become a fairly common presence throughout the whole of the London Underground during that time. But it did occur to me, if there was a terrible incident, God forbid, at that moment, who would be to blame? Of course, the person committing the atrocity is to blame. But if the person I was meeting hadn't not arrived, I would have gone. I wouldn't have been at the station. It's that butterfly on a wheel kind of thing. It's like all those little bits that if that hadn't happened, if that hadn't happened. And I thought, in the mind of someone who's in the midst of terrible grief, for the mother in the book to clutch onto something like the fact to blame the boy who didn't turn up who stood up her daughter on a date and thinking he is the reason why this happened um and to make that the the focus of her terrible anguish and of course then for the boy he didn't show up yeah exactly and so there is his dreadful pain yeah and guilt Mm. and I think you explore beautifully because yes this is in a novel and this is a terrorist attack but how many human souls say oh, if I'd just been five minutes earlier or if I you know I would have caught him when he had the heart attack or like even I'd even say that with my own father died suddenly but I mean he had told my mother the night before he said I shouldn't have eaten that apple tart of terrible indigestion and she let him sleep that night and then didn't go to the doctor the next morning and my what if is I oh, should have known indigestion as a sign of heart attack why didn't you just call an ambulance we all kind of have those things and you explore it in very scary ways, really. Yeah, it's horrible, isn't it? Because those are the moments that you wish you had the undo button that you have on like Microsoft Word, that you can just undo that bit and then it will hit reset. And I mean, I think everyone's heard 
stories of friends having relatives of like you know who missed the Titanic by 10 yeah. minutes and didn't get on board and therefore you know survived and their family line continued and things like that and just the sheer circumstance or the you know the accidental kind of moments that have such a big knock-on effect I find that really really fascinating and it's actually interesting in terms of the timing of the woman on the pier because during the edit there was a time because between me and my editor we decided to leave it fairly ambiguous as to what year and when it was set and this is further complicated by the pandemic of course yes. um, I think the fiction is kind of figuring out how to portray the pandemic or choose not to portray it within fiction and there was a period when there was an edit of the book that was set post-pandemic in order to date it so that we had the awful run of terrorist attacks back yeah. in 2017-2018 and then we had the pandemic and now we're just about that's normal it then imagined there'd be a, a new run of terrorist atrocities. But don't you think that like the world beneath our feet has turned to lava really in a way? Mm. And I was thinking about that actually reading the book in terms of challenges for writers, because a lot of people are saying we're post-pandemic, but like we don't really know when oh, post-pandemic no. is going exactly. to actually happen because, yeah. you know, this has been just everything has changed yeah and we're still very much in the midst of it and, yeah, um, yeah 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 and you could date a book you you could just oh my god they wrote that book should did they not know that there was a third variant and then yeah. you know, know this happened so no I mean definitely the kind of right thing but you mm. do it very well I mean there's a timeline in the book so it's three months before yes. three months after and mm. 19 years before and it works very well to have a key that readers could use to know where they were without having to say it's because before it did actually date the chapters and um, it's, it's actually interesting because the woman on the pier does loop back round and link into my debut novel a version of the truth really okay I definitely have to read that also in a very small way also the dinner guest um, but it's a, like blinking you miss it yeah kind of, yeah I love that I, I love that in it yeah yeah <laughs> It's also a great marketing ploy because people go, I want to see if I can find it. <laughs> yeah. If one wanted to date it, one could look at the years in my debut and realise that certain things happen at certain times. Okay. But it kind of doesn't work out too well that way. So I'm just kind of hoping that people forget the years in the in the first one and just kind of oh. view it in this happening kind of basically sort of in the present, sort of nearby. It really is more about the people. What I thought was really interesting and I am interested in themes and themes that you're drawn to and, and where your ideas come from and I mean you know that sense that you get sometimes say you walk across a bridge on a very busy street and you kind of go god everybody has different stuff going on and it's easy to forget that someone bumps off you and you, they're cranky with you and you just respond in the moment but if you were a much nicer individual you might say oh you don't know what's going on in their lives but it's when then there are tragedies like a bomb attack or something like that that you kind of go oh my god the ripple out of and the problem is 27 dead you know when there's those death tolls and we've seen it with the pandemic mm. 2000 dead whatever you know it does become and it's part of the human condition hearing about one individual induces greater empathy in a way than the bigger numbers it's a very strange thing and I think what you've achieved in a way with this book even though this is not an intention of the book is you have actually brought that focus down for every one Caroline there's thousands of others whose lives have been hugely impacted by the loss of an individual to pointless terrorism attack Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's a difficult subject, really, and it kind of comes back to what we were talking about before to do with um, who has the right to tell what stories and, and that kind of thing. But I'm always kind of drawn to more dark and disturbing subject matter when it comes to fiction. And that, of course, leads one into like distressing areas like the subjects of terrorism and things like that. And I and again, this comes back to what I was saying earlier, trying to do it well and trying to be sensitive and trying to portray it and, you know, as well as one can but it kind of crossed my mind when I was watching Titanic earlier in the year I hadn't seen Titanic for a long time and so just put the blu-ray on and then sat and watched it and it crossed my mind about is this in the best of taste having such a big blockbuster about such a terrible event and like sustained scenes of suffering of the people in the cold water and the emphasis on the terror it was the first time I actually thought about that actually when watching the film. Is this really in the best of taste? Is this right to use this as big blockbuster popcorn yeah, entertainment? Yeah. And then actually on the other side, I then thought, but this is just what human beings have been doing for hundreds yeah. of years. This is how we compute terror and horror and disaster yeah. by reducing it down into something manageable for us to view as entertainment and face it within a, the safety of a comfortable living room and for a period put oneself in that position whilst also not having to be in that position yeah. and I think it's just the way that fiction has been developing over many centuries it's something that we can't not do really I think when we're writing in order to face the darkness so we perhaps understand it more. I would say millennial going back thousands and thousands of years because prior to writing we told stories and I'm yeah. sure there were stories of disasters that were told and stories of and and I mean we have to compute this information your brain is a data gathering machine but a theme that really does interest me as a psychologist and and often I've thought actually if I was ever to write a fiction book I would be drawn to that very dark theme of child abuse and I would be drawn at it from another angle would be inside the head of the abuser. It's a really difficult theme and I didn't want the book to be too focused upon it but it was an important part of a character's story within it and I don't want to go into too many details because as you say part of it is to do with the way the plot works out and also part of it also links into my debut but I think with subjects like that, you just have to try and do it as sensitively as one can and not have it in there as just something fairly kind of, I don't know, like a plot device that's kind of thrown in. I think it should be embedded within the characters and yeah. Yeah, it's entirely embedded. And it, from my point of view, I think it's very sensitively done. I think it's a, it's not incidental. It's essential to the storyline. I don't think it gives away too much. I mean, that's one of the reasons I was saying, oh, how do I talk about this? But I suppose it is a difficult book to talk about, but to get people excited about. It's a journey. You know, you really do go on a journey with the character and there are moments where you go, ah! 
don't do that or you know oh I hope they do this or I hope so you really do become very invested and I think it's a very personal journey but I think that's kind of what happens with books you know you kind of go oh I was kind of you know for me I suppose ever the optimist you know you're kind of you know oh I maybe but you <laughs> know it's a bit silly maybe it's funny actually I I'm getting much less dark with each book that I write they're getting nice. much nicer or maybe I should say perhaps like in a more kind of less is more sort of way as I mentioned earlier The Woman in the Pier was written um three or four years ago now and it was the second book that I wrote okay um so I wrote a version of the truth and then The Woman on the Pier and then Hold Your Breath and then The Dinner Guest folks I'll put it up in the podcast blog because I will put links to all your books mm. in the blog but as you see again this is me the sense of order you now are an author who has sort of themed covers there's this kind of oh it's fab visual <laughs> continuity I think is how they yeah, yeah. <laughs> visual continuity is it it's that kind of thing makes my heart sing you know so the dinner guest is Red and white really is the theme, but also then the books are positioned within something to do with. So the dinner guest has a knife and fork and the woman on the pier now was originally the pier. It grounds it in genre a bit more. Yeah, yeah, it it does. Although I wouldn't have used that fancy word of it grounding it in genre, but it gives you more (laughs) of a clue as to what it might be about. (laughs) I I may have stolen that from the sales team at HarperCollins or my editor or something like that. (laughs) I lovely, Isn't it lovely? Yeah, you learn so much. You talk about artists and musicians, you know, the first album was easy. The second was hard. The third, you know, (laughs) I guess it just depends, really. I'm quite lucky that I've always been a number of books ahead from where they're publishing. So I've never felt necessarily the pressure of the next book or meeting the deadlines or even reader kind of expectation or anything like that, because quite often the next one's very much done and has been done for quite, quite a while. Wow. So you're going to now launch into a whole load of media, hopefully about the woman on the pier. But your head, I presume, is in writing. At the moment. Yeah, I've, I'm literally in the midst of writing book seven. <laughs> oh my goodness. You're very prolific. So how many books are you writing a year? Are you... Yeah, I was going to be three a year. And oh my that's, God, that's amazing. Yeah, I know, which is a lot. Or at least there were supposed to be three in 2021. Um, and then when The Dinner Guest became a bestseller and there was a lot of attention focused upon it, we then decided, or my publishers decided that would be actually two a year. Because if we'd done three in close, quick concession, it could have risked perhaps taking the, yeah, yeah. the attention away from The Dinner Guest when it was still doing well. So at the moment, two a year, or at least two wow. this year. And I can do that. And particularly now I'm writing full time. So when you wrote The Dinner Guest, you were actually writing that part time. Yes. Yeah, I used to. Wow, that's incredible. It was really hard for me to try and juggle the two things. Um, I do very well with structure and routine. And when I had a full time job alongside the writing, I had structure and routine in my full time job, but I didn't have it with the writing. I was having to squeeze the writing into little pockets here and there. And I didn't really have that rhythm and routine that I felt really helps sustain in the way I would like it to so what was wonderful about when I moved to writing full-time earlier in the year I was able to craft my own new routine and rhythm to this as my actual kind of full-time job now and uh, that's really helped I found and give me the freedom to not kind of constantly feel guilty that oh I should be writing here or I should be doing this here and that kind of thing and to have a little bit of a life as well as although I'm sure pandemic has kind yeah. of created that One thing about the woman on the pier, I thought it was really interesting and it's something that interests me in a way, is that 
what I've written here for myself is persisting with big decisions, even when deep down they're wrong. And it's interesting. I've only read two of your books, but marriage doesn't come out great <laughs> in either of them, really. But there's that sense in this book of persisting with relationships, mm. even though they're not right. And this series, season four, I actually spoke with a neurologist and we were talking about psychosomatic illness and mass hysteria and fascinating stuff for her most recent book is The Sleeping Beauties. And she was talking about that, that sense that there was one woman she was talking about who had been unwell and dissatisfied with her life or whatever. And in her 40s, got a diagnosis that she was on the spectrum of autism. And suddenly she realized, oh, I'm in the wrong job. I shouldn't be doing that job. That's why I'm unhappy. I'm going to change jobs. And now she's really happy. And she sort of said, why did she need the permission of a diagnosis? And that kept kind of coming to me in a way in this book, because I don't think it's giving away too much to say that Alec and Caroline, the mother and father of Jessica, who has been killed in the terrorist attack, their marriage is dissolving before their very eyes. And I know it's most recent, but it's also kind of clear that it, there were problems. Yeah, things weren't great. <laughs> there was problems all along. And there is that thing, isn't there, of persisting? Is that something that you're aware of when you're writing it, persisting with something that's not? I think it's actually... Um, something less deep or even very interesting actually it's just purely (laughs) I find that conflict makes for better plot really and um, I think it's Stephen King I'm maybe misquoting Stephen King but I think he says something like um, with fiction you just put characters on a page and introduce conflict and then the story comes about and yeah. apologies to Stephen King who have just put wrong words or another person's words into his mouth but but I'll put the link to that book actually in because I have read it it's a it's book on writing is it called on writing is that what it's on writing yeah yeah it's become almost like a bible for yeah creative writing and it's an yeah. amazing book in many respects it's certainly inspirational for me when I was starting out and it's just full of little nuggets of wisdom but the idea of just introducing conflict really kind of stuck with me because as soon as there's an ingredient of conflict introduced, it's like those ripples in a pool that then yeah. has all those other little bits that bits yeah. that go with it. So um, even though I think um, stable and very happy relationships also make great fiction, and one can you know name many different relationships that have very happy endings or remain really consistently well re- throughout, of course that has its own area. But within um, my thrillers, I find um, the more conflict I can just drop in here and there, the more those ripples spread and the more little bits there are to um, focus upon. And you just said you have that conflict in because you needed conflict. Whereas I was straight away, I have a whole other story for it. It's persisting with decisions even when they're wrong. And for me, that then goes on to the actions that she takes and the journey that she goes on to try and find the real inverted commas person who caused her daughter's death, even though Really not the right thing to do in any shape or form. This might seem like a bit of a strange and very oddly technical analogy, but I promise you it has a a point. But a number of years ago, I've always been very interested, of course, I have a a film degree background, but I've always been very interested in film and also home entertainment and the best way to watch films in home. And there was a, a documentary on how old films and also new material was being remastered for new technology such as 4K and high dynamic range and HDR as it's quite often referred to. And high dynamic range basically increases the blackest blacks and the whitest whites part of the screen. So you get really bright some parts of the screen 
and really, really deep blacks in the other parts of the screen. And also in terms of the colour spectrum, it opens it out so you get much better colours in a high dynamic range piece of content. And there was a clip of someone who worked, I think he worked for Netflix or Marvel or something like that, where he had a movie and he was doing an HDR grade. So he was choosing parts of the scene to heighten the whites and brightness and parts of the scene to really make those blacks deeper and inkier. And the colours, which bits should shine and which bits should be more diluted and it was a really fascinating thing to watch because it was almost like painting really in a filmmaking way and in some sense I thought that's how I view plot and conflict and emotion I almost have this set story as a whole and I'm just going through it and shading in the bits that I want to amplify bringing out those darker bits or lessening the other ones that aren't necessarily conducive or relevant to the plot and choosing which ones to bring to the foreground and which ones to remain less so and all the while the whole goal is the ultimate question of the book it's always that thing that's drumming behind it like who did it why did she do it why is she there all those questions and um the novelist deborah levy talks about this really compellingly um she did a talk that's on youtube about how kind of freud's idea of repression is behind a lot of fiction and the idea of repression that we kind of bury these things that we don't want to confront or don't want to think about or um, parts of ourselves that we find unpalatable or distressing, that we kind of put them deep down. But they're always there just making this knocking sound. And in a way, particularly in thrillers, it's about that knocking sound. It's that constant like that thing in the background that's drawing louder and louder as the thriller goes on because you want to find out what's knocking. Why are they knocking? Why are they there? And I try to kind of keep that in mind when I'm playing with those different bits within the plot. Is this going to make the knocking louder or are they going to forget about the knocking? Right. And basically, I want that knock on the door to be constantly all the way through to keep that question going. Excellent analogy. It also makes more sense now when you said at the start here that your book comes to you as a whole, almost like a painting. And so that kind of does make sense. I'm not a Freud fan. I think Freud told us more about inside his head than <laughs> his weird thoughts. He did indeed, as you just pointed out, is one really great achievement, I suppose, was to expose what he called the subconscious. I would just call it the unconscious. There's just so much kind of going on that's in there. And I think it's interesting, too, that we all have a dark side. And I think social media in recent years has really exposed that through the anonymity that you can achieve behind a, a keyboard and the failure to filter your darker thoughts and push them out. And I actually spoke to Mary about this when we were talking about the visibility trap. You know, those filters that we have, they have evolved because they serve a purpose. You know, they have allowed us to survive. You don't tell people exactly what you think of them or you don't speak out, you know, I don't want to fucking kill him. You don't. You filter those and you keep them below and they're bubbling under the surface. I think it's a whole other conversation how that's terrifying on social media. But I think it's brilliant the way you've just said that because for me what that is is everybody has those dark thoughts everybody has and Caroline is having dark thoughts really and she has a compulsion you know she has this need to get our answers and we all have our need to get an answer and we have a need like our entire lives who we are everything that we do is a story that we create and if we have loose ends on a story we have to figure it out we have to kind of complete that story. And I suppose that's what Carolyn's quest is, is to complete the story. Then there are also other issues of revenge and justice and those which you play on in The Dinner Guest as well. But that bubbling, I think what it is that you describe as that kind of knocking is 
that when there's a line crossed, an insanity, that failure to connect with your frontal thinking lobe, that bit that gives you your humanity, when that's gone, this is the danger of what happens. And I suppose that's probably, and I'm thinking on the fly here now, what we were talking about is why we have to have storytelling. It's almost a fable. It's almost that moral story. This is what happens if you act on. You kind of don't constrain those things. And then some of those constraints serve a purpose. Others make us more crazy and mad because they're just societal norms you know things that society has imposed on us and I suppose that's why we have so many mental health issues in society because you're not allowed to do this and you can't say that and you can't say the other but then it is important not to kill everybody that you would like to kill (laughs) those kind of constraints are essential I think yeah and actually the thing about the social media as well I think the reason why you and John Boyne touched on this I think during your discussion but the reason why people will be so much nastier on social media than in person because on social media they're writing and they're essentially writing a story and it feels a lot more like a narrative they're crafting rather than in face to face you have a conversation whereas on Twitter you're given the chance to kind of create a mini narrative it's one of the reasons why I've actually not come off social media as such but I've very much dialed down my use of social media because I used to do it as my actual job day to day yeah it was kind of like liberating to when I stopped my job in social media coordination to just kind of almost stop social media as a whole and I realized how much more quiet and peaceful the world was once I closed those doors even though I will still use it in a more of a functional way to kind of promote my books. Well you do you use it for your books because sometimes social media is great for me I can find little snippets Nothing here, nothing to see here, folks. I'm really only going to get the books, which is absolutely fine because I've kind of done the same. And I think that's very sad because I think it's become worse than an echo chamber now because there's very important voices that aren't, but everybody's voice is important, but that just aren't engaging in the conversation Mm. at all. Yeah. And it's very scary. Yeah. One of the reasons I kind of stopped was that I kind of realised how much it was influencing my mood, my general thoughts during the day and that kind of thing. And I thought if I just didn't have the app, I wouldn't have even come across that or know about that or, you know, all that kind of thing. And it can even be like relatively small things. Like I still do not know why to this day, why if someone read a book and they didn't like it, why they would then tag the author in on social media (laughs) when they're saying that they don't like it. And of course, everyone's free not to like any books they don't like and they're free to talk about it. Yeah, but why tag me? But why tag an author? And um, the the best thing I've ever heard said about that was um, Claire McIntosh, who, um, when I used to work at Waterstone, she did an event for us on Facebook Live and um, she was talking about this and she said, it's like someone running up to someone in the street, tapping on the shoulder, making them turn around and telling them they don't like their coat. It's like no one would do that in real life. Well, the fashion police. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, exactly. And yet for some reason on Twitter, it's apparently fine to say like, oh, didn't really like this book, didn't work for me. And then tag the author in the picture of it. And I just think it's unnecessary. The filters are gone. That's what I'm Mm. saying. It's those kind of social norms, I suppose they are. But those filters are gone. It's been fascinating talking to you. Your books are absolutely fabulous i can't wait to read the other two i'm delighted to think now you have three more in the pipeline yeah book for women on the pier is this november the next one as of yet untitled is next spring or summer probably but that's yet to be pinned down 
and there'll probably be another one next year as well as well as that but yeah <laughs> like it's not just so exciting like when you think about that that interview 2019 you're kind of tentatively saying you know and you're talking about managing work and writing and tentatively saying oh you all know this picture not thinking that that would happen to me but here you are like full-time author at 29 gosh by the time you're 30 you'll have about six books under your belt it's amazing and to keep them coming I like to end this podcast is about surviving and thriving in life and I I think you're really thriving at the moment so it's lovely a lot of what we talk about often is surviving terrible things so it's nice to talk to someone about thriving in a very difficult world being a writer but just life in general or for whatever reason do you have any tip that you'd like to share about surviving and thriving in life? It's difficult because everyone of course is different and I know only what works for me really But I always find giving oneself way much more time than one thinks one needs with things is just such a great way of de-stressing a situation that can quickly become stressful. And it's one of the reasons, actually, of course, not saying every writer needs to do this because they absolutely do not. But it's one of the reasons why I write a number of books ahead from where I need to be, because it makes sure it's always enough time really and um, it can remain a pleasure um, rather than a stress thinking I have to get this done and um, I try to do that with other things as well just making sure time's on one side rather than working against one is a good way to do that so that's something I'd always try to do and I'm as I said before I'm very much a routine and planned kind of person and so if I have a map I can see my way through and I really like that and that's kind of helped me in lots of areas particularly in writing and and the industry as a whole and in my previous job so yeah I'd say those two things but with the caveat that that's very much me. Well actually though I'll take that caveat away because take away the writing bit and that's really brilliant advice for managing stress it really is just super advice for managing stress in any aspect of your life. I often say to people, okay, instead of guesstimating how long something will take, time how long something takes, and then add a bit on, you actually then know, well, actually, that if you have a job like that, and a lot of things in our jobs, you can kind of time like that. And it is true what you say, like, I think stress and deadlines, particularly if you're doing something creative, stress impairs creativity, you need to be able to get into that default mode of being creative, and stress is going to impair that. So anything you can do, and actually, routine is really important for your brain, and whatever your job, you need your brain, whatever your life, you need your brain. And if you feed and water and sleep your brain regularly, it will serve you well. And it's obviously serving you super well. The books are flying out. Yeah, I <laughs> I think actually we're always quite good as a species. I mean, this is generalizing, but I think we are quite easy for us to fall into a trap of feeling guilty about the parts of our work we enjoy and feeling like we shouldn't be doing too much of them because we enjoy those parts. And therefore, the bits that we don't enjoy are the actual work. And one of the promises I made to myself when I moved to full-time writing was that the bits that I really enjoy, like reading around my subject or reading in my genre, just reading books in general or watching movies, which I find hugely inspirational, to give myself permission to think, no, they are part of my work, therefore they're part of my working day. And generally I ring fence my afternoons once I've been doing my writing in the morning. In the afternoons, I will be sat reading a book that I want to read because I find it inspirational or because I find it interesting or it's part of my genre or I'll watch a film that's perhaps going to kick off an idea. Inspire. Exactly. And give myself that time and that freedom and having it as part of my day that I don't have to feel like, oh, I'm wasting my time or I'm not I'm yeah. being idle or I'm, you know, I should be doing something else. 
So I think that's so easy that if there's a bit you particularly like, you think, oh, that's actually the part I should dismiss when I think that's the bit you should revel in and really enjoy. And so that's something I've really tried to do with my um, kind of plannings and timings and things like that. Thank you. You've given me so much permission because I have about eight books <laughs> that I want to read around this topic that I want mm. to, to write. And I really want to read them and be able to take notes, take that time to do it. And like even that, like I read your book in the evening time. <laughs> that is one of the pleasures of podcasting is to get to read books, read them for pleasure, but also you can read them in a way, I suppose that is sometimes what can happen with Audible is that you really do just listen. But then again, I don't know that you do. You always have thoughts about it. Yeah, yeah, I think it's always going. And I think the act of reading or listening itself is such an interesting, because you pass through the looking glass in some way, you pass through in this other world where so much is going on. And I think one responds without even sometimes really meaning to. And um, one of the things I do, which I, and this is probably where I'm going to sound really strange, but when it comes to reading or listening to an audiobook or watching a film, I like to almost make it into a set kind of event where like I get my book, I get a drink to drink. It's usually Coke Zero. And um <laughs> I then always um, light a candle. I always have a candle burning. I've got. Oh, yes. I saw your Yankees. Yeah, yeah. Autumn leaves burning there. Yeah. And I've got the lighting quite nice and I can sit down and read my book. And it makes it into a set specific moment that I'm going to enjoy or respond to. Whereas I think if you're snatching moments throughout the day, think, oh, I need to get this done. And like you're sitting in an uncomfortable position or the environment isn't right or it's untidy and there's distractions and that kind of stuff. It robs, I think, that more immersive part of your mind that goes into the book because you're not quite there. Whereas if you make an environment or a situation that you feel really settled in and for me at least that really helps oh no absolutely I'm reading your book now I did have to read it as a pdf on a laptop but me and my laptop are joined at the hip really and just ate the book up and the hours just flew by and that's lovely that's a losing yourself I'm moment. so pleased that it, yeah and I frequently talk about that it's fabulous and oh yeah that's one thing I wanted to ask was bp why bp is there another barnaby walter or just no, I was going to be Barnaby Walter, but my first publishers felt, well, I've always been with HarperCollins, but I was with a different imprint before, felt BP Walter was better in terms of sales and that kind of thing. And it's become quite a tradition, I think, within the genre of there being initials. Oh, uh, right. Okay. And I suppose there's an aspect of it making it more kind of like ambiguous in terms of gender. Whether you're male or female. Sort of right. Okay. I don't know if there was that much importance placed upon that. I think it was just decided by powers beyond me that um, this was a better idea. But you're my first like. Barnaby, actually. I've never <laughs> met a Barnaby. It is quite an English name, is it? I don't know, actually. It might be. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, I've only ever met one other Barnaby in my life. Yeah. And is it quite a posh name? I wonder, is that one of the reasons? I think it may be. I was certainly the only Barnaby in my school. Yeah, it could be. I think anything sometimes with um, three syllables can sometimes sound more uh, <laughs> more posh than it should, really. But um, whatever the name, I'm absolutely delighted. It's fabulous. Oh, that's lovely of you to say. <laughs> my name is Sabina Brennan, and you have been listening to Superbrain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. Superbrain is a labour of love, born of a desire to empower people to use their brain to thrive in life and attain their true potential. You can now go ad free on patreon.com forward slash superbrain for the price of a coffee. 
Please help me reach as many people as possible by sharing this episode. Imagine if we could get to a million downloads by word of mouth alone. I believe it is possible. I believe that great things happen when lots of people do little things. Visit sabinabrennan.ie for the Superbrain blog with full transcripts, links and the like. Follow me on Instagram at Sabina Brennan and on Twitter at Sabina underscore Brennan. Tune in on Thursday for another booster shot from me and on Monday for another fascinating interview with an inspiring guest. Thank you for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.